This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you one last time during this uh, time when Matt is away on sabbatical, and I just do want to say again how much of a privilege it is to be with you all as a member of your sister church at downtown, and also just to say that uh, it has been really fun to be with you all because um, in addition to really enjoying our time of worship together, you guys are a super hospitable group of people. Uh, It is remarkable um, how warm the welcome has been, and even um, thank you brother, leading us in prayer for remembering uh, my family. My aunt uh, passed away of early onset Alzheimer's um, a week ago today, and so our family is grieving. We appreciate your prayers for that, especially as those of you will know who have lost people during this time, uh, losing people during COVID, there's an added complexity. So even the fact that you somehow figured that out and prayed for me is just such a testimony to the warmth and care of this congregation. So it has been really fun to be with you all, and um, yeah, thank you. Uh, and for you guys being so obviously welcoming to my rambunctious crew on the front row here. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so um, I'll, let me start with a story. Uh, my wife and I were doing one of these marriage things one time, and the, the, it was sort of a game that we were given. And the assignment was, st- describe your spouse in one word. I think Rebecca actually got it from some coaching seminar she'd been in. So we were sitting on the front porch, and so I was like, okay, she said, Michael, you go first. Describe me in one word. And I took like 25 minutes, you know, like tried all these different words. My wife's interesting and complicated and thoughtful. And, you know, I didn't even feel, well, I can't remember what the word was because it wasn't super adequate. It didn't feel like it captured it, you know. It's like, man, this is a really tough game. Okay, now let's try the other way. And I said, Rebecca, what's one word that you describe me? And it took her like one and a half seconds. I hadn't even finished the sentence. And she's like, passionate, that's it. There's no debate. That's what it is. And I was like, what? I spent 20 minutes trying to, and she's like, no, it's just it's the word. It's obvious. So I was like, I don't know. So anyways, I went to class the next week, and I was teaching a new class. I'd spent like 15 minutes with this group of students, and I said, let's play a game. I want you guys to give me one word to describe me, having known me for like 15 minutes. And half the class was like, passionate, it's passionate, that's the word. It's like, I am the most boring person ever. It's just so simple to capture me, right? Like, some people are complicated. You really have to work to get your mind. And then other people, people like me, extreme people like me, it's like, you spend 15 minutes in class with me, you know it's passionate. You spend 10 years married to me, it's the same dadgum word, you know? Right? So, so uh, in this story, in this final chapter of Jonah, we're going to discover some words that God uses the handful of words that God uses to describe himself again and again. And what we're going to discover is that these words that God uses to describe himself are the kind of words that if you spend 15 minutes with this God, these words jump off the page. And if you spend an eternity with with this God, you never get beyond these words. Right? This is who God is. That's who we're going to encounter this morning in our text, is the God who describes himself using the most remarkable words. Right? So let's read Jonah chapter 4 together, and then we'll unpack what it might mean for us. And if you are able, please stand with me uh, for the hearing of God's word. 
So ending in chapter 3, when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant And made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now this is that strange conclusion to this story that we began three weeks ago. What does it show us? What does it tell us? What does it mean for us today? I think we can see four things this morning. First, It shows us that our God, the God we encounter in Jonah, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love all the way down. The story thrusts in front of our face this reality that the God that we worship is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love all the way down. Those are the words that Jonah uses to describe God. I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These are the words that scream off the page when Jonah thinks about God. And he's actually quoting here. He's quoting from the book of Exodus. These words show up again and again in Scripture, but the first time they show up is with Moses and the Lord on the mountain. And the context is really important. God has brought the people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's given them a good law. They've all agreed to do exactly what God has said. And then Moses is gone for like seven minutes on the mountain and everything goes haywire. And they make that golden calf and they worship it and it's idolatry and God is furious. And the God who's rescued this people is like, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses, and start over with you. And Moses courageously says, no, 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 you can't do that. Don't do that. That's a bad idea, God. And he intervenes on behalf of the people. 
And so God decides not to bring about judgment on the Israelites. And Moses, who's all hyped after having successfully argued with the Lord, decides to go one better and says, well, then will you show me your glory? Right? And so in this moment where God has just shown all this mercy to his people, God appears to Moses, comes closer to Moses in a way that's probably unparalleled almost in the Old Testament. And then God tells Moses his name. God gives Moses his words that he uses to describe himself. And they include this expression that Jonah quotes here. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes at the deepest level. This is who God is all the way down. And the first thing this text asks us to consider is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the God who we worship is best understood at the deepest level as gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? Maybe you have been here week in and week out. Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, like I have, since, since as far back as I can remember. And yet sometimes, if you're like me, you wonder, maybe there's a side of God that he's not showing us. Maybe he's holding out on us. Maybe, maybe right, maybe we can't trust his goodness. And here, Jonah is telling us, no, actually, God, at the deepest level, slow to anger, abounding. You cannot get beyond that truth about God. Our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, all the way down. That's who he is. That's the truth of his being that we can risk our lives on. That is the Lord's key words that jump off the page that we know about him if we spend five minutes with him or five million years with him. We will never get beyond those words. Gracious, merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And yet secondly, the book of Jonah forces us to choose between that God and an idol of our own creation. The book of Jonah forces us to choose between that God who just is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and an idol of our own creation. Because one of the most surprising, shocking moments in the book of Jonah is right here because Jonah uses those words about God, uses that gospel truth about who God is, not to praise God, but to accuse him. Jonah does not say, oh God, you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love on his knees in praise. Jonah hurls those truths about God in God's own face as an accusation. Jonah is furious that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah says, I knew that about you. That's why I ran away from you in the first place. Now, we got to see what's going on here, brothers and sisters. Jonah knows that his life and the life of his people depends on God's mercy and steadfast love. 
right? Like Jonah knows the story of Moses on the mountain. Jonah knows that Israel only knows of God's mercy because they desperately needed it, because their lives were on the line because of their sin. Remember last week when, when uh, the king of Assyria says, who knows if what God is like? Who knows if he will respond with mercy when we repent? Jonah knows that Israel has been in that place as well. In fact, just a few books earlier in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel calls a fast, and it's the people of God who are saying, who knows, perhaps God will relent. Jonah knows that the people of God's lives have depended on this relentless mercy of the Lord. In fact, just two chapters ago, Jonah was at the gates of death in the belly of a fish, dead on arrival except for the fact that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows that his existence depends on this God being this way. He knows that God must be merciful if, if the people of God are survived. He knows that this is the driver of Israel's praise, and yet he is irate that God would have the audacity to be the same way to those people that he has been to his people. Jonah finds it intolerable that God would be for them who he is for us. Yes, we depend for our lives on God's grace and mercy, but he darn well better not be the same way to those people over there. And for the third time in three weeks, I have to remind you, we can't really blame him because the Ninevites really are terrible. And not just terrible, they're dangerous. Remember, Jonah is from the northern part of Israel. Remember, the Assyrians and the Ninevites will eventually wipe the northern community of Israel off the map. These people are deadly. And it is deadly and dangerous to forgive them. It is deadly and dangerous for God to be for those people how he is for us people, right? It reminds me of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s reference to the love that God had given to his people as requiring a kind of dangerous unselfishness, a dangerous forgiveness. But brothers and sisters, despite the danger, the truth of the Bible is that a God who shows mercy to us but withholds it from our enemies is no God at all, but an idol of our own creation. If we try to worship a God whose mercy and grace and steadfast love is lavished on us, but withheld from our enemies, we are not worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are worshiping an idol of our own creation who cannot and will not save. The only road for Jonah, the only hope for Jonah, and the only road to hope for us runs right through accepting this enemy-loving, lavish, dangerous mercy and grace of God. Dangerous because lavished on us, dangerous because lavished on our enemies. Or, to put it in the words of King Jesus, spoken right after that prayer that we pray week to week, if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. Why? Because if we withhold forgiveness, we prove that we are not worshiping the God of heaven and earth, but an idol. The book of Jonah not only confronts us with the character of God as gracious and merciful, unfailing in his steadfast love, slow to anger, but also confronts us that when we try to withhold that character from someone else, we prove we are not worshiping God, but an idol. But third, God's saving love restores sinners for service. The third thing we see in this text, and this is a little bit harder to see, is that God's saving love restores us for service. It not only confronts us with the God who is mercy and steadfast love all the way down, the text not only suggests that we may not be worshiping that God because we don't want him to be that way to our enemies, but it also shows us that God's saving love restores us for service. And this is crucial to understanding what's going on with the Ninevites in this text. God's forgiveness of the Ninevites is grounded in his purpose for them, just like God's saving love for us is grounded in his purposes for us. And that's what explains this bizarre object lesson with the plant and the sun and the worm and all that. It's, you know, it's a really common story, but if you actually ask what is going on with this plant and the worm and everything, it's kind of confusing. But what seems to be happening is that by giving Jonah the example of the plant and raising it up, growing it up, and then allowing it to be smitten by the sun, and then watching Jonah freak out about that, and then engaging Jonah about his freaking out about that, that God is drawing a comparison between what he has done with the plant in causing it to grow, and his purposes and his plans for all people, including the Ninevites. And all of a sudden, uh, that we discover that the Ninevites aren't just big. It's not just a large city. It's a city that matters. Matters to God. Listen to Sheldon Blank paraphrase the Lord's words to Jonah about the plant. Blank says, Let us analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to the plant could not be very deep. It was here one day and gone the next. And your concern was dictated only by self-interest, not a genuine love. You never had for that plant the devotion of the gardener. If you feel as badly as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended the plant, who watched it grow only to see it wither and die? And that is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and they mean the world to me. Your pain, God says to Jonah, as it were, is nothing to my pain when I contemplate their destruction. God, in effect, says, Jonah, if you feel down when a little plant withers up and dies, can you imagine the pain that I feel 
when I contemplate witnessing the destruction of humans, of a community that I myself have invested in? How can, how can God possibly draw a parallel between a gardener growing a plant and these wicked Ninevites? It, it blows our minds, and yet it's consistent with what we see elsewhere in Scripture, and especially in Isaiah. After all, Isaiah envisions a day in which Israel, and I'm quoting here from Isaiah 19, will be the third community alongside Egypt, the archetypical oppressors from the past, and alongside Assyria, the big oppressors of Isaiah's present. In that day, Isaiah says, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Here, the prophet Isaiah looks ahead to a day when God would use the same language he uses for his chosen covenant people who he has called to be a blessing in the midst of the nations, he would use that same language on their worst enemies. Even the Egyptians, Isaiah says, will one day belong to me. Even the Assyrians, the Ninevites, will belong to me. One day they will all recognize me and become a part of of my project of blessing the world, I, I, I have to admit that these words are shocking in Isaiah 19. They'd be like saying in our own context, blessed be the American Presbyterians, they will be my third along ISIS or North Korea. We wouldn't like that. We would chase people out who talked that way, right? How dare God put our enemies on the same plane as us. And yet that is exactly what God is doing in this story. Why? Because God not only loves us, he loves our enemies, and God not only has purposes, plans, a mission for us, God has a purpose and a plan and a mission for those who we hate. So the book forces us to ask, who have we written off? Who have we given up on? Who have we cautiously kindled the slow burn of rage or hatred towards? The book says, whoever those people are, those are people too whom God will not only show steadfast love and mercy to, but for whom God has a plan and a purpose. They too are part of the garden that God wants to grow in the world. And because of that, they too may be the people to whom he is sending us. It's a difficult text. We're confronted with this God who's all these great things, but unfortunately for our hearts, he's all these great things to the people that we hate. And then he calls us to recognize that those people we hate, God also has plans and purposes for them. It's a hard lesson for us. I'm sure it was a super hard lesson for Jonah. And that's why the fourth thing we see in this text is that sometimes God saves us by sending us. Jonah's sent on this mission, but I mean, he is so messed up. We've seen that for four chapters. Jonah is sent on this task to the Ninevites, but I mean, he is a complete debacle, right? Everybody repents after his super short sermon. I can just tell you, by the way, having done a little bit of preaching, if I preach and there's ever a thousand people and animals and sackcloth and ashes, I am going to be like having a great week, 
right? That would be amazing. And what does Jonah do? At the repentance of all these people, he's furious at God for being who God is. God sends Jonah to Nineveh because their wickedness has risen up. But you know what's wicked to Jonah? What's wicked to Jonah is that God would ever consider forgiving them when they turn from their wickedness. He pulls up his, you know, he folds his lawn chair outside the city so he can watch the place burn. He's hoping, openly hoping, for a Sodom and Gomorrah experience here. And the guy's priorities are insane, right? When the little plant comes up over his head and it says he's, he rejoices with great joy. You know, one of the things that nerdy Bible teachers like me do is say, oh, that's an interesting phrase. I wonder where else that shows up. So a while back, I was like, I wonder where else great joy shows up. It shows up like five or six other places. And great joy only shows up when like God is obviously doing Doing something amazing for the entire community. Like when King Solomon prays for wisdom so that he can do justice, everyone rejoices with great joy. When they finish building the temple, they rejoice with great joy. When they have a Passover feast for the first time in decades or even centuries, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom come together to remember the God of Exodus, they have great joy. When after the exile, they're brought back in the land and they hear the law and they experience altogether the goodness of the Lord, they have great joy. And then when Jonah has this dumb plant, it's the only other time in all the Old Testament where we hear this phrase about great joy. Jonah is just wrong on This guy is a total loser, right? I mean, he is completely off track. So why does God send him in the first place? Right? Like we've seen from the very beginning, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He rules the waves. Why does he send this guy? Why does he bother sending this dude who's just going to bring trouble on the sailors and give the fish a stomach ache and just be mean? I mean, it's just this, why bother? Because God wants Jonah to. And God has decided that the best way to crack Jonah open is to send him to his enemies. And brothers and sisters, that's like us too. I told you my story a few weeks ago about being in the running for being the worst missionary ever. You know, when I was sent to a place uh, in East Africa and I was just, it was a debacle, right? And, 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 and it showed me my sin, you know? I wish that were the only story I had like that. The truth is that being involved in service and ministry of all sorts some days I look at it and I think, you know what this has mainly been for? It's been to crack me open and show me my garbage so that God could have an easier time rescuing me. Sometimes God saves us, excuse me, sometimes God sends us to save us. And that's what's going on here at the end of the book. We discover that part of the point of the whole story has been that God wants to get Jonah's heart too. And he has sent him on this torturous journey to break him down, to break him open, so that Jonah could encounter the God who is gracious and merciful all the way down in a new way. That's why we get another cliffhanger at the end of the book. Right? It's so weird. It's such a great story. And it ends in the most bizarre way. It ends with God asking Jonah a question. A weird question. Should I not have compassion on that great city which has all these people and many cattle? And then you flip the page and it's like, next book of the Bible. Wait, wait, did something fall off the bottom of Jonah? What happened? What happens? What happens to Jonah? Does he get it? How does he answer God? Like, what? what? 
Does he just die out there on the hill outside of Syria? Or does he come back? What, what happens with Jonah? And why would the book end without telling us? Well, many scholars have pointed out, and I agree with them, that the reason why Jonah ends with this question, the reason why we're not told how Jonah responds is to make us wonder how Jonah will respond and then wonder how we will respond. The book ends with a question ringing in our ears because it wants to leave us with the question ringing in our ears. Will we worship the God who is steadfast love and mercy and grace all the way down, even for our enemies? Will we allow God to send us and in sending us to crack us open to his love and mercy and justice? Or will we stay on the hill like Jonah, praying for the place to burn down? That's the question. That's the question that the book of Jonah leaves for us. And so as we come to a conclusion of this series on the book, I want to leave you with some questions. First, what would it look like to really trust ourselves? To really entrust ourselves to the God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of grace and mercy, all the way down. What would it look like to truly stake our lives on that God? What would it look like in your life? Secondly, if we were to do that, what idols would we have to stop clinging to? Remember back in chapter 2 when Jonah's in the belly of the fish and he's saying, those who cling to worship idols forfeit the steadfast love that could be theirs. At the end of chapter 4, Jonah is still clinging to his idols, the God he's made in his own image. What would it look like for us to give up on the idols of our hearts that we've created? And thirdly, where is God sending us to serve? And what would it take for us to say yes? One thing the book of Jonah shows us is that God's invitation to serve could be a nightmare assignment. Are there any nightmare assignments in your heart? Are there any places where you're being called to serve that you don't want to go? Are there any places in your life where God is saying, come this direction, love this people that you're resisting? What would it look like to say yes to God's invitation to service. Because brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the book of Jonah is not the story of the world's worst missionary. The book of Jonah is the story of the world's great God. A God who is filled with grace and mercy for all, even for the worst of sinners, and who has purposes for all, even the Ninevites, even us, and who leaves us with the question, will we cling to our idols on the hill waiting for our enemies to burn? Or will we turn and cast ourselves on the boundless mercy and steadfast love of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.